Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagonia.org. Today is, well, this is Christagonia Saturdays, I'm sorry. Today is Saturday, January 25th, 2014. Tonight I'm going to produce, uh, I'm going to present part three of what is probably going to be a long series stretching out over the entire year of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies. We've been moving rather slowly through this paper. However, I do think that it is necessary to see where Martin Luther erred about the Jews and to see where he was right. I think I summed it up last week by saying that Luther very mistakenly thought that the Jews were indeed the people of Israel, which is certainly not the case. And in spite of his thinking that, he still knew from their character that they were so corrupt and evil that they were absolutely irredeemable. And that certainly is the case. However... Luther's having taken for granted that the Jews were Israel forced him into, an, into adopting anti-scriptural universalist positions and justifying them. Anyone who thinks that the Jews are the people of the book must by necessity be a universalist. In truth, if Luther had only believed Christ, he would have known that the Jews are not Israel and that they are really devils. Luther quoted those words of Christ, yet he still thought the Jews were Israel, so he could not have believed them. Here I want to talk about the words father and son in the New Testament. If the word son is literal in Luke 3.38, and if Adam is the son of God, and Yahshua Christ being the second Adam, the second of our race, fathered, directly by God, or created directly by God, if he's the son of God, and if God is his father, if those words are literal in Luke, in reference to Adam, and in the words of Christ, in reference to himself, then those words have to be literal in John chapter 8, and the Jews are indeed the sons of the devil. Otherwise, The only alternative is to open the door by spiritualizing those words, father and son, wherever one may think fit. To open the door to doing that is to slide immediately down the slippery slope into the universalist cesspool of mainstream Christianity. 
of mainstream denominationalism, I should say. If the words father and son are related to a genetic relationship, Adam being made in the image of God, in Luke chapter 3, or anywhere Christ himself uses those words in reference to himself, then they're literal in John chapter 8. Don't tell me they're spiritual in John chapter 8, and they're literal in Luke 3.38. That's just bullshit. If you want to interpret those words fairly, you have to interpret those words consistently in both those places. Otherwise, you're opening the door for the spiritualizing of those words wherever they appear in Scripture. Where do you draw the line and make a distinguishment to stop the universalism? You can't. You have no more solid foundation to stand on. Last night, towards the end of the final segment on a presentation of the Book of Acts, I talked about, well, well, I talked in some respects about the blindness of Israel, where Paul had quoted Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and showed from Deuteronomy chapter 29 that it is Yahweh God alone who can open our eyes determining whether we can indeed see the truth of his word and see how the world around us corresponds with that word and the events happening in our lives and in our history, how he affects him, how we can perceive his hand in those events. And, of course, once again, in harmony with his word. However, it was also demonstrated that blindness is the natural result of our accepting the persons of the wicked, which we saw upon inspecting certain passages in Numbers, Joshua, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Both cases are true. Blindness comes as a punishment from God. But blindness comes when we reject his word and accept the persons of the wicked. I pointed out in uh, the first part of this presentation on Martin Luther's Jews and Their Lies, he had quoted two quote-unquote Christian writers in reference to the Jews. But those writers that he had quoted, they were converso Jews. Most of them, they themselves were converso Jews. We don't accept the persons that are wicked. If Christ couldn't convert the Jews, they're not convertible. If they converted 1,400 years later, they converted because they had motives. That was a struggle in early Christianity. There were early Roman Catholic popes who insisted that the Jews be converted to Christianity. There were other early Roman Catholic popes who understood that the Jews should be 
removed from society because they could never be converted. So that struggle was always going on in, in early Christianity. Blindness comes as a punishment from God because we reject his word and we accept the persons of the wicked. That's the message of the 86th Psalm. Therefore, blindness naturally results from our putting trust, giving credibility to liars and devils. While none of us can profess to see all things we see through a glass darkly, we today, at least those of us in Christian identity, certainly do understand the reasons for the nature of the Jew. Luther knew they were evil, but he didn't delve into the history having the correct perspective so that he could see their true identity. He didn't do that, and he took for granted Jewish claims about their identity. So Luther was still in blindness, even though, to his credit, he was nevertheless a man of great faith. And there are many things which he, which 500 years ago, Martin Luther did understand that many Christians today, even identity Christians, still don't understand. Those things, most, foremost among them, Luther understood that no man can obtain salvation by his own works but only has salvation through the mercy and grace of God. He also understood that Christ paid the price of salvation once and for all. There's no further price man can pay. There's nothing man can do to add to what Christ did for us. He just did not understand the historical identity of true Israel. And that, coupled with the belief that the Jews were Israel, led him to be a universalist. He was forced. He had no other choice because he didn't understand the history. One of the, one of the points I tried to make last night in relationship to Deuteronomy chapter 29, and again in relationship to the 69th Psalm, is that coming out of Egypt and the, the redemption which is in Christ, both times, the children of Israel were saved in spite of themselves, not on account of themselves, not by anything they could do. If we had to rely on ourselves, we're doomed. We were saved in spite of ourselves from Egypt. We were, well, well, the redemption of Christ comes in spite of the people, the true Israelites of Judea, who 
thought it was just fine, as we pointed out again last night, and, and as the Apostle John points out in John chapter 12, they thought it was just fine to go along with their Pharisees and their leaders, which facilitated the crucifixion. As it was in Egypt, as it was in Judea in the first century, so it shall be once again after these days that we will be saved. We are promised victory, but it won't be on account of us. Once again, we will be saved in spite of ourselves. You can guarantee it. If you don't believe that, just look at your brethren and think back Think back to that, that, that Hebrew man that watched Moses kill the Egyptian. And instead of being thankful, instead of having gratitude to Moses, that Moses preferred his own race, Moses being a Hebrew, and sought to protect that man who was of his own race and slew the Egyptian, that Hebrew slave, rather than being thankful to Moses, was spiteful to Moses. I believe that story's in Exodus chapter 3, maybe. Moses, ostensibly, was chosen by Yahweh to do great things on behalf of the children of Israel because Moses cared for his race much more than for the station in life which he had, which was probably pretty comfortable being a member of Pharaoh's household. That's a lesson that's also always overlooked in Scripture. Now to continue with On the Jews and Their Lies, written by Martin Luther in 1543. I have one, one more thing to say first. Sword Brethren isn't with us tonight. His, um, his grandmother had a heart attack. She's in our prayers. Martin Luther, I hold that if their Messiah, Martin Luther's still talking about the Jews, of course, for whom they hope should come and do away with their boast and its basis, meaning he's been, he's been railing against the Jews for boasting about the nobility of their birth. I have a problem with that that I'll discuss shortly, but that is the thread in this section of the first part of the Jews and their lives. The, the, the Jews displayed a pride concerning their blood and their descent from Israel. Now, Luther is countenancing that and arguing against it, but he's forced to refute the 
blood of the covenant. He's forced to refute the idea that the covenant is made with the children of Israel exclusively. And he's forced to do that because he thinks the Jews are the children of Israel. So that's what he's arguing against here. It's not the correct argument, not at all, because the covenants, as Paul explains twice in, in Hebrews chapter 9, and I'm sorry, in Hebrews chapter 8, in Romans chapter 9, as Jeremiah promises, Yahweh promises through Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31, and as Christ maintains throughout the book of Revelation, the covenants are for the 12 tribes of Israel, genetic Israel, as we see Paul again attest in Acts chapter 26. There's no changing that. Medieval churchmen had to dispute that because they thought the Jews were Israel and they knew that they themselves should be included. The truth is that they were Israel and the Jews are devils. Luther just didn't know that. He has to argue a universalist position because he knows that the Jews are devils, but he doesn't know that he is, a, is one of the true sons of Israel. So with that in mind, I'll start again from the top of the paragraph. I hold that if their Messiah, for whom they hope, should come and do away with their boast and its basis, they would crucify and blaspheme him seven times worse than they did our Messiah. And they would also say that he was not the true Messiah, but a deceiving devil. Of course, the Jews did that thing, did those things to Christ. But as Christ told them, if you were Abraham's children, you would have done the works of Abraham. Luther didn't really understand that comment. He couldn't have. Because he continued to believe that the Jews were Abraham's legitimate children. To continue, for they have portrayed their Messiah to themselves as one who would strengthen and increase such carnal and arrogant error regarding nobility of blood and lineage. That is, the same as saying that he should assist them in blaspheming God and in viewing his creatures with disdain, including the women who are also human beings and the image of God, as well as we. Moreover, they are our flesh and blood, such as mother, sister, daughter, housewives, etc. For in accordance with the aforementioned threefold song of praise, they do not hold Sarah as a woman, to be as noble as Abraham, as a man. Perhaps they wish to honor themselves for being born half noble of a noble father and half ignoble of an ignoble mother. But enough of this tomfoolery and trickery. And Luther is devising arguments against the Jews. I wouldn't say those arguments are good arguments. The best arguments are, are, are what Christ had told them in Luke 11 and John 8. Luther didn't understand those. He quotes them at times, but he doesn't elucidate. He, he doesn't get into the details of why Christ told the Jews those things. Luther, arguing against the supposed nobility of blood of the Jews, is actually validating their claim. He's agreeing with them that they are Israel. 
this, you know, from my perspective, sitting here today and looking back 500 years at this, this seems like a, a medieval psyop. At best, Luther could only have gotten his noble birth argument from the Jews themselves. And therefore, at best, he fell easy prey to their treachery. He should have read Josephus. Even if we believe that the Jews were Israel, the word of God clearly states in the Old Testament that Israel was chosen because they were the least of all nations. Yet the Jews are not Israel at all. Back to Luther. We propose to discuss their argument and boast and prove convincingly before God in the world, not before the Jews. For, as already said, they would accept this neither from Moses nor from their Messiah himself, that their argument is quite empty and stands condemned. To this end, we quote Moses in Genesis 17, whom they surely ought to believe that they are true Israelites. When God instituted circumcision, he said, among other things, any uncircumcised male shall be cut off from his people. With these words, God consigns to condemnation all who are born of flesh, no matter how noble, high, or how low their birth may have been. He does not even exempt from this judgment the seed of Abraham. Although Abraham was not merely of high and noble birth from Noah, but was also adjudged holy, and became Abraham instead of Abram. Yet none of his children shall be numbered among God's people, but rather shall be rooted out, and God will not be his God unless he, over and above his birth, is also circumcised and accepted into the covenant of God. I would say God did not cut off the flesh, but only the disobedient in the flesh. Luther's making a statistic argument based on the possibility that some of Abraham's seed would be cut off if perhaps they weren't circumcised. And that's fine, but that doesn't squeeze anybody else into the possibility of being in that covenant if they're not Abraham's seed in the first place. In other words, a Hutu couldn't go get himself circumcised and join the children of Abraham. That idea is ridiculous. A Hutu or an Englishman, it doesn't matter. To be sure, before the world, one person is properly accounted nobler than another by reason of his birth or smarter than another because of his intelligence, or stronger and more handsome than another because of his body, or richer and mightier than another in view of his possessions, or better than another on account of his special virtues. For this miserable, sinful, and mortal life must be marked by such differentiation, differentiation, I'm sorry, and inequality. The requirements of daily life and the preservation of government make it indispensable. But to strut before God and boast about being so noble, so exalted, and so rich compared to other people, that is devilish arrogance. Well, well, from a Christian standpoint, we would certainly agree. If the Jews, if Martin Luther is responding to arguments of the Jews, this is fine, 
but it doesn't invalidate the covenants God had with Israel, and the Jews are still not Israel, and Luther could have had many other ways to argue against the Jews if he'd have only studied and found who they truly were. Of course, blindness is from God. We can learn from Luther, but we shouldn't follow him, not in this. But to strut before God and boast about being so noble, so exalted, and so rich compared to other people, that is devilish arrogance. Since every birth according to the flesh is condemned before him without exception in the aforementioned verse. And of course, all flesh is born in sin ever since the expulsion of our first parents and their sin from the garden. All Adamic flesh. There's no doubt. If his covenant and word do not come to the rescue once again and create a new life and different birth, quite different from the first, from the old first birth, so if the Jews boast in their prayer before God and glory in the fact that they are the patriarchs, noble blood, lineage, and children, and that he should regard them and be gracious to them in view of this, while they condemn the Gentiles as ignoble and not of their blood, my dear man, what do you suppose such a prayer will achieve? This is what it will achieve, even if the Jews were as holy as their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob themselves. Yes, even if they were angels in heaven. On account of such a prayer, they would, not, they would have to be hurled into the abyss of hell. How much less will such prayers deliver them from their exile and return them to Jerusalem? That there are different threads in the Bible that people easily confuse. No man should boast in the flesh, but that doesn't mean that the promise is not to Abraham's seed. One doesn't preclude the other. The promise is indeed to Abraham's seed. Yet, all of Abraham's children, all of Abraham's true children, are taught that they should humble themselves knowing that we are all sinners. That there's two levels. Our actions in the flesh have nothing to do with the definite promise of the covenants and the inheritance. Our actions in the flesh should be based on whether or not we wish to be obedient to our God. That's an entire thing. Separately, our willingness to keep the law is entirely separate. Paul explains that when he tells us in Galatians that the law, which came 430 years after the promise to Abraham, does not invalidate the promises to Abraham. Boasting in the flesh is indeed arrogance before God, but that doesn't negate the promises to Abraham's seed, meaning Abraham's descendants. 
or the idea that they can be replaced by those who are not Abraham's seed, which is an idea which is not found in Scripture. Luther is evidently using the Catholic interpretation of John chapter 3, the new birth. Even though he's a man that did not believe in rituals, even though he's a man that professed that salvation couldn't be by the hand of man, he still clings to the idea that being born again, having a new and different birth, could somehow make you an Israelite. That's a Jewish idea. That's a Jewish idea. That's straight, as John Lightfoot pointed out, about a hundred years after Luther, in his commentary on the New Testament based on the Talmud and Hebraica, it was the Jews who first developed the idea that you could be immersed in water, go down into the water a Gentile, and come up out of it an Israelite. That was a Jewish idea, dating to at least the second century B.C. Clifton Emmerheiser has quoted John Lightfoot's comments on that in some of his papers, and I think I've quoted some of them in my paper, Baptism in What?, showing that the Jews had this idea that your nature could somehow be changed with a water baptism ritual. That's not what John chapter 3 is saying. And we see how old the Catholic confusion is over that word, and often. And Luther was a translator of the New Testament. The word means from above. It's used and translated in the King James Version as from above towards the end of John chapter 3 in a different context. The word means from above. You must be born from above or you shall not see the kingdom of heaven. You must be one of the children of Adam, having that spirit that God bestowed on the Adamic race. As Paul explains in Romans and, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that, that resurrection is through the spirit. If you don't have the spirit of Adam, then you can't have partner resurrection. Back to Martin Luther. For what does such devilish, arrogant prayer do other than give God's word the lie? For God declares, whosoever is born and not circumcised shall not only be ignoble, but worthless, and shall also be damned, and shall not be a part of my people, and I will not be his God. Of course, this was in the context of God's covenant with Abraham. The Jews rage against this with their blasphemous prayer as if to say, no, no, Lord God, that is not true. You must hear us because we are of noble lineage of the Holy Fathers. Luther's argument here is only valid if the Jews had discontinued circumcision, taking for granted that the Jews are Abraham's seed, Abraham's legitimate offspring. Luther's Argument is only valid if the Jews had eschewed circumcision, and they had not. 
I don't understand his argument. Maybe I'm dense. By reason of such noble birth, you must establish us as lords over all the earth and in heaven too. If you fail to do this, you break your word and do us an injustice since you have sworn to our fathers that you will accept their seed as your people forever. Yes, that is what God said to Israel, to the seed of Abraham through Jacob. That is what he said. And that is an immutable promise. And Paul explains that in Galatians chapter 3. And Paul tells us that the law can't negate that promise to Abraham, which was 430 years before the law. Luther's argument, uh, that his, his position against this noble birth argument is forcing him to ignore large parts of Scripture and to take a universalist position. Accepting the Jewish lie concerning their identity. With that, he is arguing against the Bible. Believing that it cannot be true that the Jews are the heirs of the covenant as the Jews blaspheme God. Well, the Jews certainly do blaspheme God. And men certainly shouldn't boast in the flesh. But the covenants of circumcision the covenant of circumcision excludes disobedient offspring of Abraham. However, it does not follow that therefore aliens who would submit to circumcision can therefore somehow become that offspring. Yes, there were rules concerning intermarriage between the other white Adamic tribes, but those people still don't become Abraham's offspring. The ancient Egyptians also practiced circumcision. Yet they were never considered by the God of the Scriptures. Back to Martin Luther. This is just as though a king, a prince, a lord, or a rich, handsome, smart, pious, virtuous person among us Christians were to pray thus to God, Lord God, see what a great king and lord I am. See how rich, smart, and pious I am. See what a handsome lad or lass I am in comparison to others. Be gracious to me, help me, and in view of all this, save me. The other people are not as deserving because they are not so handsome, rich, smart, pious, noble, or highborn as I am. What do you suppose should such a prayer merit? It would merit that thunder and lightning strike down from heaven and that sulfur and hellfire strike from below. That would be just punishment, for flesh and blood must not boast before God, as Moses says. Whoever is born, even from holy patriarchs and from Abraham himself, stands condemned before God and must not boast before him. St. Paul says the same thing in Romans 3.27, as does John 3. Six. Well, well, of course, no flesh should boast before God. And Paul made that very clear. But that doesn't negate the promise to Abraham's seed, which Luther just can't understand. He's in blindness. He doesn't understand 
that he really is an Israelite. He doesn't understand that these people that we know as Jews are really Edomites mixed with many other races. They're claiming to be Jews. They're claiming to be Israel. And they're claiming to be the heirs of the covenant based on their label. And they're boasting in their flesh based on their label. And of course, well, well, it's evident from things that Luther said a little earlier in his paper that the Jews that he was addressing still awaited a Messiah. Now, today, it seems that most Jews don't believe that they're going to have a Messiah, and many rabbis do indeed teach that the Jewish people are their own Messiah, that they don't have any other Messiah besides themselves. Now, I would think that that's probably true. The Jews have no God. They're bastards. There's only one God, and that God hates and despises bastards. So the Jews have to save themselves. And by doing that, by taking that attitude, the Jews are, the Jews are found to be fighting against God. Because Yahweh God, he won't be mocked forever. And the Jews are certainly a mockery and make a mockery of his creation. And they've been getting away with it for thousands of years. Their day is coming. We owe them a holocaust. There's no doubt. If they don't save themselves, they can't be saved. In their fight to save themselves, they're found fighting against God himself and corrupting and destroying his creation. Look around you. That's exactly what's going on in the world. So the Jews, while at Martin Luther's time, ostensibly some of them still believe that they might have a Messiah, by now, most Jews have given up. They know they have no Messiah. If they don't save their own asses, if they don't defeat God, they have no future. That's absolutely true. Of course, God is not going to lose. Luther accepting the Jewish lie concerning their identity has to argue against the Bible. He has to find that these things that have to do with the flesh and use them to negate the promises made to Abraham based on what Abraham believed, that the world be, would be inherited by his seed, by nations which sprang from his loins. Luther was blind in that regard. It seriously affected his theology. John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. John 3, 7, marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be, and the King James has, born again. They must have it that I don't know how long that was taught in the medieval churches, but Martin Luther 
in German must have been taught that same thing, thinking that that means born again. That word anothen means from above. It cannot mean again. I believe it's John. It might be John 3.26, John 3.28. I should probably take the time to look it up. I'm sorry I didn't look it up before the program. And no, I don't have it here. I don't have my, my, my concordance. I need my concordance to the New Testament. To the New Testament. I don't have it. I, I don't have it near my desk. That's okay. The same word, anothen, born from above, is, is translated, well, from above. Anothen simply means from above. It's translated that way in the King James Version later on in that same chapter in John chapter 3. I just don't have the passage handy. And of course, the, the 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 more urgently I look for it, the less the, the less chance I have of finding it. Such a prayer was also spoken by the Pharisee in the Gospel as he boasted about all his blessings, and that is true, saying, "I am not like other men." Moreover, his prayer was beautifully adorned since he said it with thanksgiving and fancied that he was sitting on God's lap as his pet child. But thunder and lightning from heaven cast him down to hell's abyss, as Christ himself declared, saying that the publican was justified, but the Pharisee condemned. The gospel did not say that the Pharisee was condemned. Christ did not condemn the Pharisee. Yes, the Pharisee's prayer was very pretentious. Christ had only asked which of the two men should be justified. And, of course, the answer was that the tax collector, being a humble man, was justified above the Pharisee. But Christ did not condemn the Pharisee simply because the tax collector was the humble and just man with the better prayer. It's John 3.31. I finally got a hold of my Bible works. He that cometh from above is above all. And he that is of the earth is earthly. Speaking of the earth, he that cometh from heaven is above all. Of course, Christ is making a reference to himself. But it's true of every Adamic man that lives in the spirit, because every Adamic man has that spirit from God. Where that word, where, where you see that phrase from above in John 3.31, that is the word in Greek, anothen, and anothen is translated as again 
in John 3, 6. I'm sorry, in John 3, 7. Born anothen, born again. That word should be from above. That's what it means. That's the way it was translated in John 3.31. Marvel ye not. I say it unto thee, ye must be born from above. The Apostle John, in 1 John chapter 4, explains that there are people born from above. There are people born of God as opposed to those who are born of the world, people born of the earth. John says in that same epistle that if a man's seed is in him, he cannot sin because sin will not be accounted to him. The same message that Paul has of Israel in Romans chapter 10, where he quotes the Psalms in reference to that same thing, Blessed is the man to whom Yahweh will not impute sin. When we accept Christ and we repent, our sins are not accounted to us. So long as our seed is in us, in other words, so long as we are truly children of Adam, as Paul also explains in Romans chapter 5. We cannot sin. It's not that we don't sin. All men sin. But Yahweh will not impute our sin to us. In other words, the Apostle John in 1 John chapters 3 and 4. If you're born from above, sin will not be imputed to you so long as you're repentant. If you're boasting in the flesh, then of course you're not repentant. If you're born of the world, every plant my heavenly Father did not plant shall be rooted up. If you're born of the world, that means that he did not plant you because you're a corruption. You're born of the sin of the world. You're a corruption of his creation. That is the Jew. But the Jew is not alone. He's certainly not the only corruption of God's creation. If you're not born from above, you're a corruption of God's creation. If you're not a white Adamic person, if your seed is not in you, as John says in 1 John chapter 3, then you're not part of God's creation. If you're not an Adamic man or woman, you're not found in God's creation. You're born of the world, 1 John chapter 4. The Pharisee's prayer was pretentious and boasting, and of course it wasn't a, 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 a humble and contrite prayer. He was boasting in his works. The tax collector, he was justified above the Pharisee, but the Pharisee wasn't condemned. 
to continue with Luther. Oh, what do we poor muckworms, maggots, stench, and filth presume to boast of him who is the God and creator of heaven and earth, who made us out of dirt and out of nothing? And that's a valid argument, but it doesn't negate the promise to Abraham's seed. And as far as our nature, birth, and essence are concerned, we are but dirt and nothing in his eyes, and all that we are and have comes from his grace and his rich mercy. And that's absolutely true. But Martin Luther, while he rejects the idea that men can save themselves, still clings to the idea that men have to be born again in order to be saved. Well, that's man saving himself. Oh, all you had to do is say, I believe in Jesus and get dunked in water and, and you'll be saved. That's a ritual. That's man saving himself. Martin Luther does not see his own hypocrisy. To continue, Abraham was no doubt even nobler than the Jews. Well, well of course, I'm happy, I think. I think he's saying that Abraham wasn't a Jew. Since, as we pointed out above, he was descended from the noblest patriarch, Noah, who in his day was the greatest and oldest lord, priest, and father of the entire world, and from the other nine succeeding patriarchs. So we see that Martin Luther has the idea that everybody in the world, or at least in his world, however he wants to use that word, came from Noah, which is not scripture. Abraham saw, heard, and lived with all of them and some of them, as for instance, Shem, Shelah, Eber, outlived him by many years. In other words, they lived longer, not beyond. So Abraham obviously was not lacking in nobility of blood and birth, and yet this did not in the least aid him in being numbered among God's people. No, he was idolatrous, and he would have remained under condemnation if God's word had not called him. As Joshua in chapter 24 re informs us out of God's own mouth, your fathers lived of old beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him, etc. And, and the scripture does say that in Joshua, but Joshua is not saying that Abraham himself was idolatrous. Abraham's father and brother were idolatrous. Abraham believed God. Did he serve other gods? Well, well he may have been raised in idolatry. That doesn't mean that he was an idolatrous man when he was called. Even later, after he had been called and sanctified through God's word and through faith, according to Genesis 15, Abraham did not boast of his birth or of his virtues. When he spoke with God, he did not say, Look how noble I am, born from Noah and a holy patriarch and descended from your holy nation. Nor did he say, How pious and holy I am in comparison with other people. No, he said, Behold, I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. 
This is indeed how a creature must speak to its creator, not forgetting what it is before him and how it is regarded by him. For what, that is what God said of Adam and all of his children. You are dust, and to dust you shall return, as death itself persuades us visibly and experientially to counteract, if need be, any such foolish, vain, and vexatious presumption. While Luther's attitude concerning justification of the flesh is good, it still does not demonstrate a negation in the promises to Israel according to the flesh. Paul said in Romans chapter 9, he cared for his kinsmen according to the flesh, speaking about Israel. Paul went on to explain that not all of those of Israel are of Israel. Luther missed that. He missed that one. And he went on to compare Jacob and Esau. There's a reason why Paul went on to compare Jacob and Esau. Luther missed that. The Jews were not Israel after the flesh. They were only Israel in name. Paul told the Corinthians, Behold, Israel down through the flesh are not those who are eating the sacrifices, partners of the altar. What then do I say, that that which is sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? Rather, that whatever the nation sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not to God. Were Jews sacrificing to pagan idols in the first century? No. Israel after the flesh. Paul was referring to the nations that sacrificed to demons, the pagan nations of Europe, at least many of them, including the Corinthians. They were Israel according to the flesh. The King James has Israel after the flesh in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 10. That same word is kata, and the King James Version translates that according to on many occasions. Literally, it is down through. Behold, Israel, down through the flesh, the nations are sacrificing to demons and not to God. That goes hand in hand with Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 4, that the nations of the faith are those which, we, which descended from the seed of Abraham, according to the promise. Kings shall come out of your loins. Many nations shall be of thee. That we shouldn't boast in the flesh is certain but that does not negate these promises, and it does not negate these statements by Paul which are identifying Israel for us. So Luther, all of his arguments in favor of universalism and against the Jews so far, his arguments against the Jews so far regarding blood and lineage are discredited. They're all wrong. But 
the basic simple fact is that the Jews are not who they say they are. If you want to look for Israel in the New Testament, the children of God scattered abroad, according to John chapter 11. The 12 tribes scattered abroad, according to James chapter 1. The 12 tribes of Israel, according to Paul, Acts 26. If you want to look for Israel in the New Testament, you have to look for pagans and not for Jews. That's the whole story of the Old Testament, was that Israel went off into pagan idolatry, and Yahweh put them out of his sight. He, he, he took them out of the land. Are you going to look for Jews scattered abroad? When the entire Old Testament story is that the children of Israel went off into paganism? Total cognitive disconnect there. Can't look for Jews scattered abroad if you're looking for Israel. They didn't keep the covenants and the circumcision and the promises and get thrown out of the country for that. That's not why they were expelled. That's not why Yahweh divorced them. He divorced them and expelled them because they were pagans. Wow. I don't know. Yeah, you know, when, uh, I, I, we can't brag in the flesh, right? We can't boast in the flesh. But, but when you see this message, when you see the truth of history, when you come to the Christian identity message and realize that it is truth, you just scratch your head at people like Martin Luther and, and, and you want to beat yourself over the head that he didn't see it. How could he not see it? How could he not see it? And, and, and well, that, that's the, the, the gift of vision, but we should be humble about that too. How did he not see it? It wasn't given for him to see. The most important lesson in Martin Luther is that, and, and this will become evident as we approach the later parts of this treatise, the most important lesson is that he knew that the Jews were evil, irredeemable bastards, even though he thought they were God's people. He made that realization. He couldn't reconcile the two ideas. So he refuted the first and went off into universalism. He had no choice. Back to Martin Luther. Now you can see what fine children of Abraham the Jews really are, how well they take after their father. Yes, what fine people of God they are. They boast before God of their physical birth and of the noble blood inherited from their fathers, despising all other people. Although God regards them in all these respects as dust and ashes and damned by birth, the same as all other heathens. And yet they give God the lie. They insist on being in the right. And with such blasphemous and darnable prayer, they purpose to wrest God's grace from him and to regain Jerusalem. And Luther is actually doing what he accuses the Jews of doing. Of course, the Jews do that. But Luther does it too. 
because he's trying to universalize very specific promises and, and make them as if that they were made for other people other than who they were made for. And it's, it, it's a trap. It's a huge trap. If you accept the Jewish claim to who they are, you're trapped and you have to become a universalist and you have to devise ways to argue against the word of Scripture. You don't have a choice. So you end up no better than the Jew. Even though a lot of Luther's arguments are valid, they invalidate themselves because he doesn't understand the immutable. Paul explained the covenants as being immutable, that no man could make additions to those covenants. They are not changeable, so they have to be reconciled in some other way. Well, the truth of history reconciles them for us, and we don't need to make devices because we have history to understand who the children of Israel are and who the Jews are. Furthermore, even if the Jews were seven times blinder than they are, if that were possible, they would still have to see that Esau or Edom, as far as his physical birth is concerned, was as noble as Jacob. Well, that's true. Since he was not only the son of the same father, Isaac, and of the same mother, Rebekah, but he was also the firstborn, and primogeniture at the, that time conferred the highest nobility over against the other children. But what did his equal birth, or even his primogeniture, by virtue of which he was far nobler than Jacob, benefit him? He was still not numbered among God's people, although he called Abraham his grandfather and Sarah his grandmother, just as Jacob did. Indeed, as has already been said, even more validly than Jacob. Conversely, Abraham himself, as well as Sarah, had to regard him as their grandson, the son of Isaac and Rebekah. They even had to regard him as the firstborn and a nobler, and Jacob as the lesser. But tell me, what good did his physical birth and his noble blood inherited from Abraham do him? And here, Martin Luther is devising another artificial, uh, artificial argument because he doesn't understand that Esau was a fornicator. Paul spells that right out. He was a fornicator and a profane person. It's all about race. Luther could not see that. He was 100% blind to that. If it was about birth, Esau should have gotten a birthright. If it didn't matter who he married, Rebecca makes it a very strong point in Genesis that Esau married Hittites and her life was worthless if Jacob did the same thing. The Hittite girls were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. And Esau finally realized he screwed up in who he married, but he still didn't correct it. He didn't do any better by getting an Ishmaelite wife. 
Lucifer is blind to that. Paul called Esau in Hebrews chapter 12 a profane person and a fornicator. That's why Esau couldn't get the blessing of the birthright. If we have to look for the sin of Esau, we have to believe Paul of Tarsus. Esau was a profane person and a fornicator, which perfectly agrees with Rebekah's grief. So we see why Esau, why his birth did him no good, because he despised his lineage. Luther was blind to that. This is the, the, the best example of Luther's blindness. When universalists are blind to race, they're in danger of losing their own birthrights, being like Esau. Luther goes on to say, someone may interpose that Esau forfeited his honor because he became evil. Well, Paul said he was a fornicator and a profane person. That has to be Esau's sin. If there was some other reason why Esau couldn't have his blessing or his birthright, do you suppose Paul still would have called him a fornicator and a profane person? Why would Paul judge that man unjustly? Luther continues, we must rejoin, in other words, protest against the idea that Esau became evil. We must rejoin, first of all, that the question at issue is whether nobility of blood itself is so valid before God that one could thereby be or become God's people. Well, yeah, it is valid before God because Esau was discredited and lost his position as the heir because of blood not for any other reason. You could go back and read those accounts in Genesis 10,000 times. The only reason why Esau could be discredited was because his wives were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. They were a grief of mind to Rebekah to the point where she said that her life would be useless if Jacob took wives as Esau did from the daughters of Heth the Hittites. So it is all about blood. And Luther being forced to universalism because he doesn't know he's an Israelite and he thinks the Jews are Israelites, that forces him into universalism. He has to argue against the word of God, ignore the reasons which Paul gave for Esau's discrediting, ignore the words of Rebekah, and make up his own reasons. He goes on to say, if it is not, then why do then the Jews exalt this birth so highly before other children of men? The Jews are really Esau. That's the real irony here. But if it is valid, why then does God not guard it from falling? He did the cherub which guards the way to the tree of life in Genesis chapter 3. He does promise that it's guarded from falling. 
For if God regards fiscal birth as adequate for making the descendants of the holy patriarchs his people, that's what it says. It's spelled out in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 36. He dare not let them become evil, thereby losing his people and becoming a son of God. If he does, however, let them become evil, it is certain that he does not regard birth as a means of yielding or producing a people for him. Luther doesn't understand it. Yahweh always works with a remnant of his people and preserves that remnant. The children of Israel taken out of Assyria, taken out of Israel by Assyria, were a remnant. They were only a portion. The rest were all put to the sword, fled, overrun by other races, what, what, whatever. Amalgamated by Canaanites, whatever. There was only a remnant in Israel. There was a, only a remnant taken out. The tribes that made it to Europe are only a remnant of Israel's former glory. Elijah thought that he was alone. And Yahweh told him he had 7,000 men who had not had the need to bow. Yahweh works with remnants of his people. And through that, we all have a learning experience. Observing the hand of Yahweh in history, that no matter how his people are reduced, he preserves them. And Luther is entirely blind to that. Luther continues defending Esau. In the second place, Esau was not ejected from the people of God because he became evil later on. Nor was Jacob counted among the people of God in view of his subsequent good life. You know, Paul says that Esau became a profane person, and a fornicator. He did become evil later on, but he was rejected because he had no offspring valid of being the heirs of the covenant. He had no offspring worthy because they were all race mixed. He couldn't inherit the promises. That's why Paul says he found no room for repentance. He couldn't get it back. He couldn't have the birthright. He had nobody to leave it to, nobody worthy to leave it to. No, while they were both still in their mother's womb, the word of God distinguished between the two. Jacob was called East. Jacob was called, Esau was not. In accordance with the words, the elder shall serve the younger. I would attribute that to the providence of God. Yahweh hated Esau while he was still in his mother's womb because Yahweh knew what Esau was going to do with his life. In reality, Yahweh's in control. Esau chose 
the Passy did because she agreed with that sin. This was not at all affected by the fact that they were both carried under the same mother's heart, that they were both nourished with the same milk and blood of one and the same mother, Rebecca, that they were both born of her at the same time. So one must say that no matter how identical flesh, blood, milk, body, and mother were in this instance, they could not help Esau, nor could they hinder Jacob from acquiring the grace by which people become God's children or his people. Decisive here are the word and the calling which ignore the birth. And Luther just doesn't understand that Jacob was chosen because of his birth. And Esau was made an example of because of his lack of concern for his birth and his birthright. Luther's arguing against the word of God. He's imagining that people could become children of God. Which is absolutely not possible. And for which there's no real foundation in Scripture. Ishmael, too can say that he is equally a true and natural son of Abraham. But what does his physical birth avail him? Despite this, he has to yield up the home and the heritage of Abraham and leave it to his brother Isaac. You may say that Ishmael was born of Hagar while Isaac was born of Sarah. If anything, this strengthens our argument, for Isaac's birth from Sarah was affected by the word of God and not by flesh and blood, since Sarah was past the natural age for, for bearing children. The Word of God says that the heir would not be from the woman who is a bondwoman, but from the woman who is a free woman. There are probably deeper reasons why Hagar was rejected. That was primary. It was Sarah's idea that Abraham take Hagar to wife to have an heir. That was contrary to the word which God spoke. Sarah was to be the mother of the heir. Sarah was from Abraham's kin and the tribe of Shem. Hagar was from Ham. Yahweh insisted that the appointed seed of Abraham come from the free woman of his own kin rather than the bondwoman of another tribe and from the will of God and not from the devices of man. Ishmael was born of the device of Sarah, not by the word of God. He was the son of the flesh, as Paul called him, not the son of the spirit, the promise which God made. To discuss the question 
a birth a bit further, although Ishmael is Abraham's flesh and blood and his natural son, still the flesh and blood of such a holy father does not help him because it wasn't according to the word of God. <clears throat> it was Sarah's bright idea to give Abraham her handmaid to have an heir. It rather harms him because he was... He has no more than flesh and blood from Abraham and does not also have God's word in his favor. The fact that Isaac is descended from the blood of Abraham does not handicap him, even though it was useless to Ishmael, because he has the word of God, which distinguishes him from his brother Ishmael, who is of the flesh and blood of the same Abraham. But he wasn't from the chosen line. He wasn't from the line God chose to be the heirs of the covenants. Abraham tried to substitute for his seed before Sarah had the idea of giving him Hagar in a man who was ostensibly from of his own tribe, Eleazar of Damascus his steward, a man born in his house. And God said, no, your heir will come from your loins. And all of the promises to Abraham were predicated on that same idea, that his heirs would come from his loins, from his seed, from out of his belly. That precludes the idea that someone could possibly become one of Abraham's seed or become one of the children of God. Martin Luther is arguing against the Bible because he has to maintain his universalist position. He has no choice. He's going to continue to argue against the Bible as long as he accepts the idea that the Jews are Israel. If the Jews were Israel, Aryans should just throw their Bibles in the garbage. They're worthless to us. Just toss them. They're no good. Thankfully, while Yahweh might have a sense of humor, it certainly isn't the case that the Jews are Israel. God's word is true, and the Jews are liars. Why should so much ado be made of this? After all, if birth counts before God, I can claim to be just as noble as any Jew. Yes, as noble as Abraham himself, as David, as all the holy prophets and apostles. Nor will I owe them any thanks if they consider me just as noble as themselves before God by reason of my birth. And if God refuses to acknowledge my nobility in birth as the equal to that of Isaac, Abraham, David, and all the saints, I maintain that he is doing me an injustice and that he is not a fair judge. It's not nobility of birth that matters. It's, a, it's the election of God that matters. The election of God was not based upon nobility of birth. This whole argument is, is, is false. It's false from the mouth of the Jews, and it's false 
when Luther argues against it. Luther is using an invalid argument in order to promote universalism and his blindness of both Jewish and Israelite identity. He goes on, For I will not give it up, neither Abraham, David, prophets, apostles, nor even an angel in heaven shall deny me the right to boast that Noah, so far as physical birth or flesh and blood is concerned, is my true natural ancestor. Luther's taking that for granted. He can't prove it. And that his wife, whoever she may have been, is my true natural ancestress. For we are all descended since the deluge from that one Noah. We did not descend from Cain, for his family perished forever in a flood together with many of the cousins, brother-in-laws, and friends of Noah. Luther takes it for granted that the children of Cain perished in the flood. I don't know how he interpreted the Kenites of Genesis chapter 15. The Rephaim are clearly the giants. That could be demonstrated all the way down to the books of Chronicles in Scripture, that the Rephaim are the giants. Agabashan, Goliath, and his brothers. They're Rephaim. They're giants. They survived the flood. Joshua Christ, in Luke chapter 11, tells the race of his enemies that that race is responsible for the blood of Abel. He tells them in John chapter 8 that they are the sons of their father, a devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. In both events, Luke 11 and John 8, Christ can only be referring to Cain. He can't be referring to anybody else. Nobody else is responsible for the blood of Abel. Nobody else is a murderer from the beginning. In both instances, without doubt, he's referring to Cain. And these people who are his opponents in the temple are the descendants of Cain, or Christ is a liar. You could trace the Edomites back to the Canaanites, and you could trace the Canaanites back to the Kenites, because the Kenites and the Canaanites and the Rephaim were all cohabiting with one another. It was their habit to make marriages in compact with other tribes. Those habits are noticed all throughout the Old Testament when they try to do the same thing over and over again with the children of Israel, and the children of Israel are told to refuse them. You see what their traditions are to make intermarriages with the neighboring tribes. The Kenites dwell amongst the Canaanites ostensibly for about 1,700 years from the time of Noah to the time of the Hebrew conquest alone, 1,700 years. You think those Canaanites and those Hittites had some of the blood of Cain in them and carried it down to Esau, and that's how Christ could stand in the temple and tell his opponents that they descended from Cain? That's the only way. Those Kenites in Genesis chapter 15, they were the children of Cain. I don't know what Bible 
Luther was reading, I don't know how he was taught those things or how he understood him. I can't crawl into his head to see how he could make such a statement in spite of Scripture. But he does it. I don't know what his training was, but he was a translator of Scripture. I don't. I. I can't. I can't make excuses for him. I can't defend this. To me, it's a total cognitive disconnect. He claims a descent from Noah, and that is all based on Catholic teaching concerning the flood. <clears throat> it's not based on an actual knowledge of history. What he says about Cain is certainly not based on even an actual knowledge of Scripture. Otherwise, Christ is a liar. He's not telling us the truth in John 8 and in Luke 11. Luther's taking it for granted that the entire planet was flooded, evidently, and only eight people survived on the entire planet. The Bible does not teach that. Not at all. To continue with Luther, I also boast that Japheth, Noah's firstborn son, is my true natural ancestor with his wife, whoever she may have been. Is my true natural ancestress. For as Moses informs us in Genesis 10, he is the progenitor of all us Gentiles. That, that's a misstatement. Thus Shem, the second son of Noah, and all of his descendants have no grounds to boast against his older brother, Japheth, because of their birth. Indeed, if birth is to play a role, then Japheth, as the oldest son and the true heir, has reason for boasting over against Shem, his younger brother, and Shem's descendants, whether these be called Jews or Ishmaelites or Edomites. But what does physical primogeniture help the good Japheth, our ancestor? Nothing at all. Shem enjoys precedence, not by reason of birth, which would accord precedence to Japheth, but because God's word and calling are the arbiter here. And, and again, I, I don't know if Luther learned scripture from the Bible or, or from some Catholic catechism or something. I, 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 don't, I, I don't know. I, I can't. The man went to the university. He, he received a couple of bachelor's degrees. He received a doctorate a few years later. And Noah was 500 years ago, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem's listed first. That is Genesis 5.32. Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Japheth's the youngest of the brothers, not the oldest. Genesis 6.10, and Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Genesis 7.13, and the selfsame day entered Noah 
and Shem and Ham and Japheth. Everywhere the sons are listed, the order of their birth, Noah begat several times, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. For whatever reason, in Genesis chapter 10, and, and ostensibly it's so that the narrative can flow from the sons of Shem right into Genesis chapters 11, 12, 13, all the way down to Abraham. For whatever reason, the literary device in Genesis chapter 10 listed the sons in the reverse order of their birth because many times, several times it says Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem's listed first. If the Melchizedek priesthood came down through Shem, it has to be that Shem's the oldest. That's besides the point. Shem's listed first. It's firstborn several times in Scripture. Japheth's descendants are listed first in Genesis 10. Genesis 10 are listed in the reverse order. The youngest is listed first as a literary device, not because of the primogeniture. It's very clear. Now, this reference to the Gentiles in Japheth, you know, the sons of Japheth are listed in Genesis 10, then the sons of Ham are listed in Genesis 10, then the sons of Shem are listed in Genesis 10. After the sons of Shem are listed, it says, these are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues and their lands, after their nations. Oh, that's the same word translated Gentiles in a zillion places in Scripture. But more importantly, Genesis 10.32 summarizes the entire chapter of Genesis 10 where it says, these are the families of the sons of Noah after their nations in their after their generations in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. That word for nations is the same Hebrew word in every occurrence of Genesis chapter ten. There's no other word for nations used. You can't distinguish the Gentiles of Japheth from the nations of Shem. That's absolutely absurd. Luther's a translator of scripture. I'm starting to find that hard to believe. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to exalt myself. It's spelled out in, in black and white in, in the Bible program. It's right in front of my face. It, it's, it's the King James Version on the screen. It, it's... It, it's um, clear that Luther was a student of Catholic dogma rather than being a student of what the scriptures said. So what we're going to get into the um, into the good things that Martin Luther said eventually, but his arguments concerning primogeniture in answer to the Jews are basically canned Catholic catechism, which is universalist in nature and contrary to Scripture. 
you can't you can't believe the Bible if you believe that you're a Gentile and the Jews are Israel. That's what it boils down to. You can't possibly believe what the Bible is actually saying. Martin Luther is refuting the Bible. And he's wrong at every turn. That's unfortunate, but that, that's blindness. That's where it gets us. And, and most of our race still believes like Martin Luther believed. And it's not right. It's not right at all. Genesis chapter 10 says that the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth collectively are the nations. And if we want to translate that word Gentiles in reference to Japheth, we have to take that same word and translate it as Gentiles in reference to Shem and Ham. Martin Luther insists that Japheth is the firstborn. The Bible, every time it says Noah begat, lists Japheth last. Japheth is the youngest. Shem is the firstborn. According to every time it says Noah begat, Shem is listed first. How did Luther get that one wrong? It seems to me he's just being the typical prosecutor and, and looking for every possible item that he could throw into the kitchen sink in his refutation of the Jews. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, obviously. The man was a translator of Scripture, and I would hope he'd have done better than that. Maybe someday I'll learn German, and I doubt it. I really do. German's hard. In the next paragraph, Luther asserts that Shem is one of his ancestors. So let's go back to Luther and see how he digs this one up. I could go back to the beginning of the world and trace our common ancestry from Adam and Eve, later from Shem, Enoch, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech. For all of these are our ancestors as well as the Jews, and we share equally in the honor, nobility, and fame of descent from them as do the Jews. We are their flesh and blood just as Abraham and all his seed are. For we were in the loins of the same holy fathers in the same measure as they were. And there is no difference whatsoever with regard to birth or flesh and blood, as reason must tell us. Therefore, the blind Jews are truly stupid fools, much more absurd than the Gentiles, to boast so before God of their physical birth, though they are by reason of it no better than the Gentiles, since we both partake of one birth, one flesh, and one blood from the very first, best, and holiest ancestors. Neither can one reproach or upbraid the other about some peculiarity without implicating himself at the same time. And of course, Luther's outlook is absolutely universalist, and it's not historical. He doesn't know that he's descended from these people. He's taking for granted that the flood 
covered the entire globe, that even the descendants of Cain, that everybody was destroyed except eight people, and therefore, by deduction, he has to be descended from these people. It's based on Catholic dogma. It's not based on historical knowledge. But let us move on. David lumps us altogether nicely and convincingly when he declares in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now go, whether you are Jew or Gentile, born of Adam or Abraham, of Enoch or David, and boast before God of your fine nobility, of your exalted lineage, your ancient ancestry. Here you learn that we all are conceived and born in sin by father and mother, and no human being is excluded. And ostensibly, that's absolutely true. However, it doesn't negate the promises to Abraham's seed. So it's a false argument. Yes, we're all born in sin. The promises are still to Abraham's seed. No, no flesh would, should boast before God, but the promises are still to Abraham's seed. Israel in the New Testament Throughout the New Testament, James, Paul in Acts 26, James in his epistle in the first chapter, Christ in his revelation, in Revelation chapter 21, in Revelation chapter 7, still reckons Israel by tribes. Tribes are genetic. They're not spiritual. So Luther's belief that no flesh should boast before God is a good one, but it doesn't apply to the covenants and the promises. Luther's understanding that all men are born in sin is a valid one, but it doesn't negate the fact that the covenants and the promises are to those who came from Abraham's loins, those who were born of the seed of Abraham. That can't be negated. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that it can't be changed. That's the word of God. It can't be changed. One half of the Bible doesn't negate the other half. If it did, then we should throw both halves in the trash because they've wiped each other out. God is true. Let every man be a liar. But what does it mean to be born in sin other than to be born under God's wrath and condemnation? So that by nature of birth, we are unable to be God's people or children. That's not true. That's not the story of the Bible. Solomon. Solomon is the perfect example. David had his eyes on Bathsheba. 
who was married to Uriah the Hittite, which means Uriah the fearsome. Uriah was a great warrior. He was an Israelite. Hittite there is an adjective, not a tribal designation. The word has both meanings. David had Uriah slain so that he could have Bathsheba. He was a murderer. He understood it. He acknowledged that before God, that he had done a horrible deed. But he still had Bathsheba. He still got Uriah's wife, and he had a baby with her. And the first baby died, and he had another baby with her. Solomon, the king, the wisest man who possibly ever walked the face of the earth, King Solomon, all the wisdom in the world granted him by God, was the son of... What greater sin could there be than that? That didn't negate the promises God made to David that Solomon was born out of such a sinful union. And in fact, Solomon went on to become one of the ancestors of the Christ. Luther's arguments don't hold up the scripture, not at all. But we'll continue to read them. But what does it mean to be born in sin and to be born under God's wrath and condemnation so that by nature of birth we are unable to be God's people or children? Where does it say that? And our birth, glory, and nobility, our honor and praise denote nothing more than can denote nothing else than that in default of anything to our credit other than our physical birth. We are condemned sinners. Well, that's true, but it doesn't negate the promises. Enemies of God, and in his disfavor, disfavor we were made odious to God. Yes, that's true, when the children of Israel were put out of the land. because they broke his covenants. There, Jew, you have your boast, and we Gentiles have ours together with you as well as you with us. Now go ahead and pray that God might respect your nobility, your race, your flesh, and blood. The promises to Abraham are immutable, according to Paul, but they're not based on nobility. They're based on the word of God and the promises he made to Abraham, which will not be broken. That his seed would become many nations and inherit the earth. Here is the artificial Jew-Gentile dichotomy, and, and we've seen it throughout Luther's writing. Yet the promise to Abraham is that his offspring would become many nations or many Gentiles. And they are, but none of them are Jews. Luther's blind to that. He has to argue in favor of universalism and deny a great portion of Scripture. 
he goes on to say, this I wanted to say for the strengthening, strengthening of our faith, for the Jews will not give up their pride in boasting about their nobility and lineage. As was said above, their hearts are hardened. Well, the Jews could think whatever they want of themselves, it doesn't matter. Christ told them that they were devils. that they were not his children, that they did not have a father in common with him. Their hearts must be hardened by necessity because they're lying about their lineage. Christians, including Luther, have ignored the simple words of Christ. But you believe me not because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you. If Christians would believe that, they wouldn't accept the Jewish lies. It's that simple. And if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Christians don't believe that. If Christians would deny the Jews on those simple scriptural precepts and investigate why it was that Christ said such things, the Jews would have no standing whatsoever because their real lies would be exposed. Luther goes on to say, our people, however, must be on their guard against them, lest they be misled by this impenitent, accursed people who give God the lie and haughtily despise all the world. Well, Paul said the Jews were contrary to all men. They killed the Messiah and they were contrary to all men. Luther knew they were accursed, but he didn't know why. All he had to do was believe Christ. He'd rather accept the Jews' claim of who they were. And that's the mistake Christians are still making. So we either throw our Bibles away... Or we understand Christian identity, because that's the only way that the Bible is found to be true, is with Christian identity. Then every word of the Bible can be found to be true. From Genesis all the way through Revelation, there's no scripture I would argue against except for those few that can be shown to be corrupt. And they are, but few. Thank you for listening. I hope that we, um, that, that we don't beat a, beat a dead horse to death with the rest of this presentation on Martin Luther. I know that he does get into many other things, and, and he's not wrong about them all, the man had a lot to offer people of his time. He was just blind in one eye, as Clifton likes to say. I, I think it was more like an eye and a half. But to understand Martin Luther is to understand basically medieval Catholicism and how it was, it was based on emotion and it was based on presumptions, but it wasn't really based on scripture. 
And Martin Luther, a translator of scripture, was wanting much. And, and as we've just seen, he was wanting some, some very simple foundational statements right in the first ten chapters of Genesis. What, where he, he even got the, 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 um, the, the birth order of the sons of Noah wrong. So that, that's unfortunate, but it's important that we see that. It, it's important to see how Catholic dogma somehow overruled the plain words of Scripture, even in the mind of Martin Luther. That's unfortunate. That's the word of God, that his people would be blind. Thank you for listening. I will be here next week with, um, I'm going to do something different next Friday night. I'm going to talk about the 29th chapter of Acts. I had just finished my Acts presentation, and that won't, I, I'm not going to consider that a, a part of the, the Acts presentation, but it needs to be spoken about because that's something that, what well, well, British Israel clings to, the 29th chapter of Acts is a straight fraud, and next Friday I'll tell why, exactly why. The, the, um, the balance, that's only going to take about 20 or 30 minutes. The balance of the program next Friday, I'm going to be open to phone calls. I'm going to do open lines if indeed I have phone calls. Callers would be appreciated. Honest callers. Uh, I'll, whether you agree with me or, or, or you, you, you don't, I'm willing to talk about it. Whatever you bring up. So that's your opportunity if you want one. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. I'll be here next Friday night. Acts chapter 29 and open lines. Good night.